0: thought leadership from PwC welcome to PwC's accounting podcast I'm Heather Horn today we're continuing our focus on current events talking about the deals market listeners to the podcast who were with us last year remember many of our guests talking about the SPAC boom a phenomena that saw billions of dollars pour into the market and created a flurry of new public companies this year, the market looks completely different, with a lot of companies sitting on the sidelines and taking a wait-and-see approach.
1: There's a lot of headwinds out there that folks are facing as they look to the markets, so it's uh, it's a much quieter year than the excitement that we saw in 2020 and 2021. Uncertainty is bad for the
2: deals environment across buy side, sell side, capital raising, etc., right? Typically, in periods of volatility, you see deals markets behave like they are now.
0: Those are my guests, Mike Bellin and John Van partners in PwC's Deals Practice. Mike and John are here to give an overall update on what deals are looking like in today's economic environment, as well as bringing a few key tips for what companies who are waiting to time the market can be doing to get ready for a deal once it does heat up. And even if you're not currently looking at a deal, there's definitely things in here you'll want to think about as you think about the economy more broadly. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Mike, John, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you on. And Mike, nice to have you back to talk about uh, some of the latest on M&A and the like. So perhaps just to kick things off, hit things straight on, why don't we talk about where we are so far in 2022 in terms of what we're seeing from a deal perspective?
1: Yeah, sh- sure. Thanks, Heather. And, and great to be back. Um, great to be here with, with John as well. Um, 2022 has been a dramatic shift from prior, pri- prior conversation around 2021 and 2020 in terms of the capital markets activity that we're seeing out there. Um, if you look at through Q3 of 2022, we've had, you know, shy of 25 traditional IPOs out there. Um, and from a SPAC IPO perspective, you know, we're right in the neighborhood of about 75 with the majority of those taking place in Q1 of this year. So when you think about those volumes, those are dramatically lower than what we spoke about for 2021 when we had 951 IPOs between SPACs and traditional IPOs. And even 2020 when we had 431 IPOs between traditional IPOs and, and SPACs. So at under 100, we're, we're moving at a much slower pace um, than we've seen in the past. In terms of other activity out there, from the SPAC perspective, which is SPACs finding a partner to merge with, um, that's significantly lower as well. I think there was about you know 40 or so deals through the first half of this year, whereas last year um, we were sitting at over 100 mergers taking place between uh, SPACs and a target company out there. So so volumes across the board are lower on the M&A side of the house too. We're seeing lower volumes than we saw in prior quarters, and we're in the, in the comparative prior year as well. So um, there's a lot of headwinds out there that folks are facing as they look to the to the markets. So it's uh, it's a much quieter year than the excitement that we saw in 2020 and 2021.
0: So I definitely have my own speculation about what the cause is, but what are some of the key things you would point to in terms of the difference in level of activity?
1: Yeah, I think top of the list is the inflationary environment that we're in. All right, that's
0: the first thing I wrote down. <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> and in our, so proud of myself. In our audience, probably that's the top of their mind. We see in the headlines every day. Uh, creates a lot of uncertainty. And then that drives the interest rate uh, picture out there as well. And, you know, through, through Q3 here, we've seen a lot of interest rate increases happen throughout the year. Are there going to be more? There's a lot of speculation that there will be. That creates more uncertainty. That creates a lot of complexity when it comes to financing deals as well. So I think top of my list is inflationary. the inflationary environment we're currently sitting in along with the interest rates. And then I also think about the supply chain constraints, and we witnessed this during COVID. I think there's still some of those impacts out there that are slowing down um, the the rate of growth for certain companies, the ability to get out to market, uh, which puts further pressure on deals and valuations. And then last but not least, and that I see out there is geopolitical events. Uh, we've seen the Russian conflict continue to, 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 to move forward here. Um, we've, we've heard about China, the UK economic concerns that have been in the headlines. I think all of those items are creating great uncertainty out there for market participants uh, and, and causing a lot of deals to get delayed, causing a lot of deals to maybe not move forward. Um, but just causing a lot of concern for, for executives out there.
2: Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting, Heather. Mike and I were, were talking the other day. The biggest thing, and he, Mike hit on it, is uncertainty is bad for the deals environment across buy side, sell side, capital raising, etc. Right? Typically, in periods of volatility, you see deals markets behave like they are now. Um, and you're seeing a lot of those factors. And, and one of the things that ripples through in particular is the debt markets right? Which gets to, to one of Mike's points. Um, it's really hard to raise capital. You, you see LBOs aren't happening, right? And that, that ripples through to the capital markets activity, to activity on the sell side. It drives differences in how you structure things. Uh, we're really operating in a unique environment. Uh, we're starting to see some softness in employment stats and labor stats, which we haven't seen to date, which is one of the positive factors. But it, we're operating in just this really unique, uncertain environment we haven't seen for so long.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I got three for four. So I got the inflation, interest rates, supply chain, and I missed geopolitics, which Craig Stromberg, who's a frequent guest on the podcast, he'd be so upset because he literally was just talking to me about this. So anyway, three for four. But, so I have a question. I wanna get into some of like how companies are making this work and what you should be doing if you're on hold, but just more fundamentally, put aside these outside forces you still have companies that are looking at their business and saying, this part of my business isn't a good fit, or I really need to acquire someone to do X, Y, Z for my business? Like some of those types of deal drivers are still there. So what are people doing? They're just waiting and hoping things will change or or how do you address that?
2: Yeah, some of it, you, you do see a lot of cash on the sidelines still. Uh, And that's one of the interesting market dynamics that you've seen. It's one of the things when we saw kind of a release in capital markets activity, you know, two, three years ago that I think was one of the big drivers of that at that time. So then that becomes a question of when something happens, not if. Uh, You are seeing a lot of companies look at their portfolios to Heather. Typically, in times like these, you will see divestiture activity rise, um, non-core assets or monetization type activities on assets that are even more core. And then you also see on the buy side, and, and Mike, you, you can chime in on what, what you're seeing, but you see people be cre- companies be more creative with their structures. So it might be hard to finance an LBO right now. So you take a minority stake,
1: for example. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to add on that, I, I think we look at private equity dry powder, which drives a lot of deals out there. The dry powder on the sidelines is at an all-time high. So there is a an abundance of cash out there. I, I think when you look to the private equity space, And you look to the executives as well. What they're really focused on is a return to the fundamentals. How can they drive scale in their operations? How can they drive growth in their operations? How can they manage costs? And I think when you put all those pieces of the equation together, there there definitely are deals to be done out there, both buy side and sell side. But I think in the environment with that uncertainty that we hit on, I think folks are making sure that everything is aligned here um, to minimize risks that are out there. We are seeing a lot of private equity firms and other operators start to roll up companies as well. So we're seeing some smaller acquisitions being pieced together to bring that scale, bring that profitability, create synergies out there. So there are some very thoughtful ways that folks are operating in this environment. And then on the divestor side that John mentioned, um, we're, we're seeing some significant ones out there that are have been announced and that are in flight right now, as you said, as companies look to divest of some of their non-core assets to raise capital, to bring cash on the balance sheet to protect themselves because financing is very tight right now. So we are seeing folks being creative as possible to John's point.
2: You know, Heather, one of the things we, Mike and I often talk about, and it's probably worth uh, reiterating is companies can go public. If you just put your IPO hat on for a minute, Mike, right? Companies can go public in any marketplace, so we hear a lot of discussion, right, about windows opening and closing and a lot of discussion about it being closed now. But we do talk to our clients a lot about, you know, depending on the nature of your business, level of maturity, ability to accurately close your books and records, you know, deliver financial information to the street accurately, predict, you know, there are companies that, that will go in down markets. Now, this is a particularly down market, right? But, but Mike, we've, we've certainly seen examples of this in the past.
1: Absolutely, the market doesn't stay shut forever, and and for companies who want to take that opportunity to really prepare themselves while the market is quieter, so when the market does open, companies can launch on their terms. Uh, we're seeing a lot of companies prepare in the background, you know, and that, and that goes across the organization, bringing maturity to a lot of functions, thinking about the right headcount in certain roles out there, making sure you can accurately have visibility to your numbers out there. And and for most companies that are thinking about going public at some point in the future, that preparation time is, is well in excess of 12 months for many. I would say 12 to 24 months is really the average we see of companies taking that time to really prepare themselves to be public. Uh, because once they go, um, the, the, the spotlight is on them and they want, they want to make sure that they're functioning on all cylinders out there. So that preparation time... Is key, and, and for a lot of the companies now with the down market, that is exactly what they're doing. They, they, they A lot of them have sites on a 23 IPO, and they all know that to get the right audits done, to get the document prepared, to make sure they can close their books on time, make sure they have the right systems in place, have they thought about governance, you know, what about a value creation story can I put in my document? They're all working through that today as we speak, so they can be ready to launch on their terms because that lead time to really prepare themselves um, is is a long lead time.
0: So then, Mike, like, if I'm a company, I was thinking IPO, now I'm looking at 23, and I, I know there is a lot involved in being a public company. Are we seeing some of those companies then switch to looking to be acquired
1: uh, or like a strategic type of acquisition? Yeah, great question. I, I think with the companies that John and I have worked on, one of the key trends we see out there is what we refer to as a dual track process. So... Folks are, are, are marching towards an IPO, but that maturity that they put themselves on, on that path to an IPO benefits them in any exit, whether it's an M&A exit. Um, you know, whether they continue to stay private, it brings value to the organization. So I do think a lot of our clients are, are looking at, you know, what can bring their stakeholders the best return? What is the best place for the organization to continue, um, its growth? That could be an IPO. That could be an M&A exit as well. Um, we are seeing a lot of companies who have gone down the IPO path and have successful IPOs, selling in a down market. Their targets for M&A, so it it all kind of comes together. Um, that maturity is going to help them, regardless of the situation they ultimately take.
0: So I want to go back to something you said. You mentioned that you're seeing people get more creative, which of course caught my ear. And specifically, what are some of the ways that Again, I'm a company, maybe not IPO, but I do want to do some type of deal. What are some of the ways companies are getting deals done right now?
2: Yeah, so maybe, maybe I'll throw out a couple of examples, Heather. Um, if you think about, say, for example, the financing market is tight, uh, but I as a buyer am very interested in this business, uh, I might look at acquiring a minority stake. And, but I might want to acquire a large minority stake. So I might want to get up in the 49% range, which is we, you know, the accountants in us know that 50%, right, plus is a, is a magic number uh, in some respects, depending on governance and rights. So you're seeing a lot of structures, right, where maybe there's a minority stake and you're navigating, okay, is that really a minority stake for accounting purposes or is that a consolidation type issue? You're also seeing minority stakes with uh, financial instruments type issues, Uh, minority stakes with call options to acquire more, Uh, minority stakes with other types of forwards, puts, other instruments that create complexity there, but right from a business perspective, allow time and optionality uh, for both buyer and seller. I would also say the other thing you're seeing on the the investment side of companies that need financing is uh, creative structures being utilized with respect to debt versus equity. Uh, preferred stock that maybe has similar characteristics to debt, but qualifies as equity uh, for gap purposes, or gives the investor some type of upside into the entity, right? Instruments that, you know, from an M&A financing perspective, economically aren't that complex or are commonly used, but have a lot of complexity in terms of of executing them, right? And then do create some risk around uh, the accounting outcome for both investor, investee, buyer, seller, etc.
1: Yeah, and I think some of that that unconventional lending out there it drives a lot of accounting complexities. Um, but but it's 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 what a lot of our clients are looking to in a tight credit market. A lot of the clients, you know, some clients may be flush with cash. Others they need to raise more cash to make sure they are a going concern for the next twelve months out there. And some of that those non-conventional lenders that are being more creative or have the ability to be more creative on those financing terms that John mentioned, we're seeing a big rise in that, especially from the private equity side. You know a lot of debt funds being raised by private equity to to fund some of the activity that's going on there in the market today.
2: You also hear a lot of discussion, Heather, on um, investors looking for yield. Uh, particularly certain types of investors, right? Buying financial assets, other things, uh, you see securitization vehicles, those types of things occur more frequently in market conditions like this, where, you know, you have capital you have to deploy to to the point on so much dry powder being out there. So you want to deploy it in some way to get a return on it through assets that will, you know, financial assets or other things that will provide yield to you as the investor.
0: All right. Definitely a lot to think about then. So if... You know, you made a comment that there are obviously still deals getting done. If I'm one of these uh, companies sitting on all this capital, trying to figure out what to do with it, what are some of the things they're thinking about as they're looking at potential acquisitions?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it just comes down to synergies is is the key word from, from the folks that I'm talking to, whether those are cost synergies, whether those are revenue synergies. If you put two together, are you going to get, you know, more than that sum? Um as a result of the transaction. So I I do think companies are looking to what markets can I get into? What are new markets I may be entering into as a result of an acquisition? Um, What clients, what customers may be acquiring as part of this so I can create synergies for my other revenue streams that are already out there. So I think it really comes down to creating value um, along that way. I think a lot of the private equity deals um, that that have taken place over the past few years are, are very good at looking at value creation and how can they go about creating value and telling the right story out there to get the right return for the stakeholders involved. Uh, I think a lot of corporates are thinking about that as well. What are some assets I should acquire so I can get into a new market, get into a new product line? And and on the flip side, what are some of my existing assets that would serve me better to divest of along the way? So I I do think synergies is is the key word that, that I see in those deals.
2: Yeah, you tend to see discussions right around, and I've I've seen a few of these. Um, I want to finance a deal with debt and equity. Maybe I have to write a bigger equity check to get the deal done. So, am I comfortable with a return? You know, say two to five percent lower than what it otherwise would have been if I could finance it more with debt? And I think that's a decision point based on the fundamentals, right? At the, the financial position of the acquirer as well as the fundamentals of the acquiree, right? If you think it's a good business, maybe maybe you're willing to make a longer term play, you, you take less of a return, longer time horizon to exit, etc.
0: So I don't want to be pejorative here. And I'm not sure going to be wanting to answer this. But is it fair to say that maybe the deals we're seeing now are better deals than what you're seeing when there are so many deals going on when, it, you know, And again, I I know you're both smiling at me. This may not be something that deals people you really want to acknowledge, but just curious how you would kind of rate that.
2: Yeah, I think there's a greater level of, um, and I don't mean the word literally, mean this literally Heather, but I think there's a greater level of diligence and focus on businesses in this marketplace. And so the level of effort to get a deal done right now is higher. And I think you just end up sometimes seeing businesses that have a higher risk profile or that maybe have certain things that a year ago would have made a buyer nervous, but maybe wouldn't have killed a deal rising to that level today. And so it sort of knocks off a subset of companies or industries when you can get dislocations in value. It knocks off a subset of players from the, the viable marketplace.
1: Yeah. What I would add on to that is is really playing on that valuation point. Whether companies were looking at an IPO, we're looking at a SPAC merger, or they're looking for an M&A transaction, it comes down to the valuation fundamentals and what are they going to be valued at out there in the market. And I think when companies look to their public peers out there in the public markets, we've all seen a big decrease during the course of this year and in the the, equity capitalization of a lot of their peers out there. So Suddenly, their valuation is maybe gone down by half, maybe by thirty percent, whatever that number is. Is now the right time for them to go out to the public market? Are they willing to take that valuation hit as long as they can really deliver on their business on a go-forward basis and create a return for their shareholders? So I think some folks are tied to some of their public peer benchmarks out there, and then on the M&A side, companies always look at the public peers as an indicator of valuation as well. So. I do think there is that return to fundamentals, if you will. What's the growth strategy of the company? Um, What is the cost structure of the organization? But but like John said, whether it's banks from an underwriter's diligence perspective or it's it's M&A diligence being done, there's a lot more looked at, at at all these companies nowadays from financial perspective, from a tax perspective. And really from that, I keep going back to the value creation perspective, there's a big focus Around that today on any transaction that's out there.
2: Yeah, I've heard, I've heard the words cold feet, cold feet several times recently, uh, which is which is not a great sign.
0: <laughs> All right, well, definitely very diplomatic answers there. I guess return to fundamentals is kind of code for making sure it's a good deal. But um, with that said, one of the things we haven't talked about here then is just from a regulatory perspective, and are we what are we seeing from a regulator perspective in terms of deals getting done? Broadly, and then of course specifically talking about the SEC.
2: Yeah, maybe maybe I'll start, and and Mike, you can you can chime in. Um, you know, certainly from a regulatory perspective, we're, we're coming off a period um, where there was a lot of focus on SPACs, uh, other transactions in the marketplace, right, gen- generating press around that. Um, one of the things that's that's an interesting dialogue right now is that the, from a regulatory perspective you know particularly if you think about the SEC they're balancing uh, need for capital formation with investor protection and that's particularly challenging you know in a marketplace like this and I think that's uh, some of the discussion Mike and I were just talking about this yesterday actually um, Heather right I mean you have a you have a different, you have two two elements, and it's a three part mission, right? Those are just two of them, but uh, the SEC in particular ha- has both of those. Um, I think, likewise, companies that are that are going through a, a process in in this regulatory environment, right? We are seeing more scrutiny uh, on companies, but I think it's just important that a company focus on uh, again, we'll come back to fundamentals, right? But just just having a good controlled process and the regulatory environment is always there. You're always going through a review process. Say, for example, if you're doing an IPO, I've rarely, if ever seen a company that didn't come out of that process in better shape than it went in. There's a lot of value to a company for going through that process. Uh, and so what it comes down to is you, know, you have to have a little extra diligence, a little extra ownership, right? You really want to make sure that you have your house in order, um, both in terms of your ability to communicate your books and records, et cetera. Uh, if you have complex issues, that you're proactive with those, that you manage them with the staff and other regulators, um, and and you know you can work through the process in in any marketplace.
1: Yeah, I I think what we've seen too in a lot of the deals is the advisor group around the organizations, you know they're they're taking that feedback from the regulator, um, and if I think about the context of the proposed SPAC rules that are out there. We're seeing more diligence being done on deals on the backside of some of those proposed rules out there. So again, I think that's positive for everyone in the marketplace, both buyers and sellers, that additional diligence is being conducted on these companies before anything is done. Um, that's impacting valuations, as we mentioned out there, and it's probably come to more realistic um, valuation as well. But also, you know, a lot of companies are also thinking about, what is the right path for me to go? Heather, you asked about an M;A route before maybe that's a better route in light of you know some of the some of the things out there when when folks really digest um, everything they're going to have to be compliant with um, or some of the risk added risks out there of certain transactions so we are seeing companies being more thoughtful about their path um, I think that's that is a positive effect of some of the the impact of the regulator out there in addition to what John mentioned
2: mike, it's it's really interesting. we were we were talking about this the other day as well. Um, when in our in our history, right? we've worked a lot together, but in our history, a lot of the deals we've seen that don't go through, so just say IPOs for a moment um, and you think about whether it's regulatory wise or for other reasons, it's for actually things that are quite simple. Um, you have a miss on a core accounting issue, right? Or you have an issue wrong um, that just didn't get get managed appropriately, right? Or you have an issue as a company with your MDNA or your legal risk factors. You have something that's inconsistent with how you market your products or services and how that translates into your S1 document. So, you know, kind of Heather, back to your question, right? Like a lot of the focus on fundamentals, you know, detail, focus on the details. Like keep it simple. Focus on the basics because it really is surprising. Those a lot of times are the
1: reasons why things blow up. And and I I think that, John, that takes us back to that preparation point, you know, 12 to 24 months prior to a deal. If you're thinking about an exit, and I'll use exit very broadly again, IPO, SPAC, M&A, there's a lot to make sure that you're you're doing correctly. And in this environment, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies looking at, you know, new contracts. We talked about creative financing out there, you know, in the down market, how are companies thinking about their existing option plans and are they repricing those? Um, there's a host of just core accounting issues out there that companies need to work through in this environment. A lot of companies have dealt with COVID and COVID accounting implications out there. I know, Heather, you've you've had a, a lot of podcasts on that as well. But in this environment, too, rev rec, impairment, financing structures, bolt-on deals, comp arrangements, um, those are all things that we're seeing that our clients are struggling with today. So, starting on those areas early. And and John, I know you've seen a lot of that too. And and you're seeing.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, impairments is one we've been talking about. And I think Heather, you've done some, uh, had some discussions recently on this, particularly non-financial asset impairments. We haven't seen a lot of these for a while. And and so there's a lot of people having to dust off skill sets, right. Around these issues and refamiliarize, uh, themselves with what's happening. Um, the subset of our practice, right, that's focused on complex accounting issues, to Mike's point, is is running pretty hot right now ar- around these issues, and it's a combination of current market conditions, pent up demand for MA, things that might come out in twenty three, even twenty four after. Um, but there's a there's a lot of uh, discussions out there around these topics.
0: So, in the context of impairment, then, are we seeing some like bargain purchases where? you know, someone has to take a big impairment. So that's a good opportunity for someone to come in with the acquisition? Or is that more of like a myth than something that really happens?
2: I haven't seen that exact uh, situation recently, Heather and Mike, you can jump in if you have but but what I have seen is investors looking at industries that are challenged right now as buying opportunities. Uh, And that might be before the actual impairments are taken, you know, depending on the timing. But there are dislocations occurring, especially given geopolitical conditions, conditions in the debt, debt markets, et cetera, that investors are looking at.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've seen a lot of volatility play into deals um, coming through, in, in particular sectors. I mean, if you look at energy, and I'll call it the run-up that energy has had during 2022, um, from the start of the year where we were to, to where we are today, You know, energy prices are higher. So I've seen some deals that have been inked and agreed upon in earlier in the year, closed later in the year, those companies have recognized bargain bargain purchase gains um, simply because the value of the assets is much higher given where energy prices are today or commodity prices are today versus where they were at the start of the year. So I think in certain sectors where we're seeing some of the bargain purchase gains come out there, I, I do think on, on the buy side, as, as John mentioned, there are some very um, thoughtful niche plays where maybe it's a little bit harder to you're willing to pay up for because you are getting those synergies or whatever the deal value driver is. Uh, But I've not seen a connection between the two. I've just seen it in certain sectors where it's been played out that way.
0: All right. Very helpful perspective. So you guys started talking accounting, and I do want to come back to that. But before we do, a couple other forces I want to check in on. So, Mike, early on you mentioned geopolitics, and we touched on it briefly. But I do want to delve a little deeper, because as we think – you know, we talked about some of what's going on in the US. But if we look more broadly in the world, a lot of turmoil, right? There's geopolitical issues, a lot of market turmoil, and other things. So are we seeing that result in less, I'll call it multinational type of acquisitions and more just focus on a US market? Or does that just mean there's more opportunity to maybe do some deals, you know, other part in other parts of the world?
1: Great question. And, And I think on the buy side, it goes back to diligence. That companies are doing a great deal of diligence around any cross-border deals that they're looking at today, for all the reasons that you mentioned, Heather, out there. I think overall the market slowed down. I think cross-border M and A activity is slower. I think a lot of that is driven about just the uncertainty in certain jurisdictions where assets may sit. On the flip side, you know, I think it creates opportunity. Again, if I put my private equity hat on. I'm sure there's a lot of targets that maybe sit outside the U.S. that are suddenly much cheaper uh, than they were a year ago. So does it make sense for private equity plays or any corporate plays into some of those assets? I think there's a lot of diligence being done around those and some investigatory looking at, at those assets out there. But I think it's slowed down quite a bit because of those factors.
0: All right, one other thing then, and Mike, we've talked about before is ESG and how that's kind of factoring into deals in terms of maybe someone is looking to become more green or there's, you know, they're trying to divest of something that's less green or otherwise. I mean, is that really a factor we're seeing right now or just given all these other forces that's maybe not playing as much into some of the deals that we're seeing?
1: I think I think it's on the the forefront of everyone's mind. I think with with the staff the SEC staff putting out um, some proposed guidance around it. Everyone's thinking about, what does this mean for me? Uh, and outside the U.S., there's a lot of other regulators out there who are putting similar ESG-like guidance out there and requirements out there. So regardless of where you sit, um, you're probably being impacted by something from an ESG perspective. So I think the, every deal has a lens of ESG. Nowadays, we're seeing ESG diligence uh, take place on more deals out there and and I imagine to your point there are a lot of companies that are looking on for bolt-ons or other acquisitions which may help them with their story out there from an ESG perspective so it's definitely on the forefront of everyone's mind
2: it's certainly something Mike if you think about you know an, an IPO readiness work that's being done for companies that has risen to the forefront much more so uh, than in the recent past and I've seen you know on the acquisition side or even on on the sell side heather it's it's sort of another element of, okay, what setting aside the business side, which is which is very important, right? What are companies doing? Are they making doing deals uh, to, to become more green, right, or to advance a certain strategy? But there's also a you know process side of what might my requirements be? You know, am I in the US? Am I global? you know, jurisdictionally, what might my my reporting requirements be? What might other regulatory requirements be? So, you know, it's another added layer of something that you need to plan for sort of regardless of the the path or type of transaction.
0: All right, very helpful. So I want to go back. That was actually great segue. It's almost like you knew what I was going to ask and talk about IPO readiness or deal readiness. And we've touched on it a few times, but I just want to make sure we don't give it short shrift. Which is, let's say I was thinking about a deal and for whatever reason it is on hold and I'm I'm not going to do something yet, or maybe I'm just finally getting to the point that it makes sense for me to start thinking about it. What are some of the things companies should be thinking about now? And I know we've talked about some of them. I just, like I said, want to make sure we kind of get them all in one, one place, what companies should be doing.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll focus on the public markets out there. So IPO, SPAC mergers... I think some of the long poles in the tent for, for any organization are, are close times. How quickly can you close your books? As a public company, you want to close under 10 days. I think best practice is five to seven days that we've seen out there. A lot of private companies, because they don't have that required cadence to close, they're on a 15, 20, maybe more than that close out there. So how can you shorten it through the lens of people, processes, and systems out there? And that is typically a heavy lift for any organization. To do. Um, I think the, the other area is processes and controls. Um, even though most companies going out today don't have to be compliant with Sarbanes-Oxley day one, they want to know what are the material weaknesses. Um, processes help any organization bring that maturity, bring that value. So we're seeing a lot of companies start with items like socks sooner than they maybe otherwise would um, when they're really under pressure to get out there and go public. So I, I think those are two of the big areas. And then just making sure they have the right audits done. And they're thinking about all that complexity that, that John mentioned earlier around, should I think about an impairment in a prior period? If, if I did recast um, some of my share share plans, what does that look like from an accounting perspective? There's a lot of complexity in all of that that companies can get well ahead of. So when they do go IPO, they do a SPAC transaction in the back of their 2022 annual accounts, they're ready, they can get through that audit effectively. Um, and they thought about what it means to be public out there. Yeah, when you go
2: through the readiness process, Heather, right, you're going through it cross-functionally as an organization. So accounting, HR, systems, governance, other things. And, you know, there may be an opportunity to take advantage actually of current market conditions. And, and it sort of allows you to go a little slower uh, sometimes where companies can have challenges, right? you You go public, you, you have the party, you pop the champagne, and you know you go, "Oh, geez, now in thirty days, I have to report out. And maybe your level of maturity wasn't where you wanted it to be because it was such a heavy lift to get to being public. Um, and so you can take the time now, you know maybe avail yourself of that opportunity to make sure you have a good, smooth, controlled processes that you can close your books that you identify gaps you have, right? Every company has weaknesses and gaps, just like each of us have things we're working on every day, right? And it's good to know what those are and have the time to say, okay, I'm going to fix this, but I'm not going to fix that, right? And so you're a little more eyes wide open when you have more time in terms of the risks you have in as, or- as an organization and what you can do to address those.
0: All right. So then if you are talking to a company, maybe controller specifically, and you need to give them some advice in terms of what they should be looking for in terms of doing a deal or getting ready for a deal, you can pick where you want to go with that. What are some of the things that you would highlight based on all the experience that you've had? And Mike, I'll ask you first.
1: I I think it is start early. Um, these processes always take longer than anyone expects. Um, Like I said, IPO readiness or public company readiness is typically done 18 months in advance of even having an organization meeting for your IPO. So starting that process earlier, identifying the gaps that John mentioned that may exist cross-functionally and putting those gaps into a Gantt chart, really project managing the process here from start to finish, um, assigning and allocating resources to each of the gaps that exist out there, that's going to make the controller's life a lot more efficient sustainable uh, for the long run out there it's going to make a very cont- for a controlled process as well so you're able to hit the milestones you're able to drive your timeline out there and whether it's a public exit or an M&A exit I, th- I think that 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 maturity and that project management angle of it is, is critical and, and we've seen companies that do have very strong project management function around their deal get deals done very efficiently um, they're able to respond to a buyer's input or a banker's questions. Around the deal, so so I do think starting early is is key.
0: And I guess Mike, one of the things I was thinking when you were talking is even if you ultimately don't do a deal, these are all things that are probably going to make you stronger from your own company perspective. So it's almost like there's no downside in making sure you are doing your reporting effectively, you are thinking about your accounting issues timely, like all you have the right you know management in place. All of that seems of so a positive no matter what type of company you are.
1: Exactly. Because every, every IPO, every SPAC merger today is, is a dual track. And if a private equity firm is looking at you, if a corporate is looking at you, and you can deliver your numbers shortly after year end, if you can show them the visibility you have to your future earnings out there, if you can show them you have processes and controls in place already, all that is going to add value to the organization regardless of the exit.
0: All right, and John, how about from your perspective?
2: Yeah, my kid, my kid on a couple of them. The, the project management side of of doing deals is really key. You know, in any type of deal, y- you have to execute with speed and precision, right? And that that is somewhat unique, right? Um, y- you have to go fast, and you have to be one hundred percent right. The, the other thing I would say is um, companies that do deals well, uh, whether it's an IPO, an acquisition, a divestiture. They're thinking beyond the actual discrete deal event. So if you're doing an IPO, you're thinking about, okay, how am I going to report one, two, three, four quarters later, right? On the buy side, what am I going to do with this business and planning? And so those companies that plan, you know, one, two steps ahead, give themselves optionality actually to, to do other things.
0: Well, definitely some good advice, a lot to think about. I feel like I want to have you back in three months to say if things have changed in 2023, although maybe we'll have to go a little more time. But Mike, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And John, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to have you as a guest. That does it for today. Join me back here next week for more episodes, including the continuation of our Fixed Asset Toolkit series and also more ESG content so that you never miss any of our content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and have some feedback for us, an idea for other episodes, or anything else you'd like to share. Please feel free to reach out to me at heather.horn.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.